This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome to Mad World, the podcast that aims to prove that it's really, really normal to feel weird. Each week we're going to talk to a different person about their mental health, the ways they deal with their mental health, and the ways that they sometimes don't deal with it. Last week we kicked off with some dude called Harry, lives in a palace, don't know if you've heard of him. Today though, we have the most brilliant woman with us in the studio. Her name might not be as immediately recognisable to you as His Royal Highness Prince Henry of Wales, but her story is no less interesting. Mandy Stevens is a former NHS Director of Mental Health. She has worked for 30 years in mental health nursing services. But last year, she went from being a mental health professional to a mental health patient herself after she was admitted to hospital in Hackney, near where she lives, for a major depressive episode. And Mandy is here today to tell us her story about how she went from professional to patient. Mandy, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Hello. So Mandy, we start each podcast by asking each guest how they are, but not just how are you. Like, Don't just answer with, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, I want to know, how are you really right now, Mandy Stevens? Oh, thank you, Bryony. Um, so looking at the day, it's been six months since I was admitted to hospital, uh-huh. uh, which is a huge length of time. Uh-huh. Um, I'm really delighted with how I'm feeling at the moment I'm feeling much more positive and my depression has nearly lifted but the anxiety is still got its kind of evil clutches on me every now and then so the answer is I'm feeling pretty good most of the time so tell us a bit about your background context you had never ever experienced any kind of form of mental illness except what you experienced when you went to work every day I've had what would be called mild to moderate depression about three times and it's been like reactive so something like with a bereavement or something like that so something has happened and then I've reacted and then I've got a little bit low after that so yeah three or four times I've had some mild to moderate depression but nothing major never used NHS services never been in hospital and I've never been you know nothing like this before ever so tell us what happened you were working in a in was it in South London? Yes, yeah, so I was working in North London, and I was working Sorry. as a director. That's okay, uh, working as a director, and depression can kind of creep up on you, and you don't realise. And now I can reflect and look back, I can see some symptoms that had been coming on that I just hadn't noticed. Because when you're at work, you put on your kind of suit of armour, and you kind of 
as a leader, you have to be kind of strong and you're working with lots of different people and keeping very busy. And I had a meeting with my boss one day and I wasn't feeling low, wasn't feeling sad at all. And at the end of the meeting, which went very well, this is with the chief executive of the trust, I just sort of got a bit hot and wet behind my eyes. And I thought, oh, that's a bit weird because I never get upset or never get emotional at work. And then she said, oh, are you okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. She asked me another question and I started crying and I thought, oh, goodness me, there's definitely something wrong. Um, And she was great and we had a bit of a chat and she was really supportive. So I went home and did something called the Beck's Depression Inventory, which is a list of 22 questions. How's your sleep? Uh, How's your concentration? How's your memory at the moment? And stuff like that. So that's what GPs would give to you? Yeah, a GP would do it, yeah, a psychologist. And you can find it online and do it yourself. It's really easy to do. And it's very, very clear what's no depression, mild depression, moderate, severe. So I scored 21-22, which is mild to moderate depression. And I sort of thought, gosh, you know, I, I really hadn't picked up on it. So the next day I booked an appointment to see a private psychiatrist that I'd seen a couple of times before and went to see her two days later. So she said to me, yeah, you, you know, you're, you're very depressed and you need to have some therapy um, and here's some antidepressants, come back and see me in a week. And over that week, my mood absolutely plummeted. It went so quickly downhill. And at work, I was absolutely fine because you're, it's kind of a stiff upper lip type thing. Well, so you can talk, so talk to us a bit about the work that you were doing because you were working with seriously ill, yeah. mentally ill people. Yeah. So my career history is I've done 15 years as a registered nurse a mental health nurse so I started as a cleaner then a healthcare assistant and then a staff nurse so I've worked in crisis teams I've worked on acute wards I've worked in psychiatric intensive care units and I've worked in the community I've led anxiety management groups I've worked with people with schizophrenia for six or seven years and done a lot of rehabilitation work so clinically I know everything there is to know you about thought mental you knew health it all. yeah absolutely for the last 15 years I've sort of developed into management and leadership positions so I started off as a modern and then I worked as a hospital director for Priory Healthcare, the independent group, for Mm -hmm. four years, and then back in the NHS. So I've been a director of nursing twice, I've been a director of operations, and then my last job was director of quality improvement. So let's go back to the the week where your mood plummeted. So how did you feel? I know it's very difficult to describe when you're well again, which thankfully you seem to be. I am. We can talk about that later. I find and I found that when you're well and people say, what does it feel like to be depressed? And it's really difficult to put into words because I think it's partly protective mechanism of your body, a bit like you don't remember how painful childbirth was. (laughs) And it's wanting to kind of deny the trauma of depression. But can you, that said, can you, um, how is it manifesting itself? So during that week, because I kept my guard up I didn't allow myself to get really low so although I started having really bad thoughts and thinking about what kind of when you say bad yeah thoughts. so talking thinking about harming myself so it's very very common for people with depression to have suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. or think about you know this is terrible and life's not worth living so I was having some really horrible thoughts getting sadder and sadder and more depressed but because I was at work I didn't let my guard down so I was putting longer hours in at work Um, Was that a sort of protective mechanism? Absolutely, yeah. And when I look back to a previous episode, that's definitely what what I did. And I just kept going at work, which is what so many people do, and then took the antidepressants and then just got through it. So you'd you'd recognise that you were ill. I mean, this is it's quite unusual for some. I mean, I guess the fact your your work allowed you to kind of see the signs. So you went home and you did the test, and then you went to see your private psychiatrist. 
you know, for lots of people that they don't have that kind of wherewithal, do they? Yeah. So you had that knowledge, but even then, you you know, you couldn't stop the thoughts. You couldn't. Yep. And at what point did you think I need help here? So when depression um, gets hold of you. It really grips you. So I went back to see the private psychiatrist a week later. And by that time, my mood had massively gone down. And I was very tearful and having a lot more thoughts of self-harm and stuff. And the, the thing I think that was a trigger for her was when she said to me, you know, Mandy, if you killed yourself, how do you think your family would feel? Mm. And I said, well, you know, they, they'd be upset, but they'd, they'd get over it. You really thought that? Well, because that's what you do. You you convert the thoughts in your head. And she said she looked at me and she said, Mandy, your your mum and your family for the rest of their life will miss you every single day. And I can remember kind of shrugging and just kind of looking away. And all the things that are important to you, so all the things that we have in our lives that are what we call protective factors, so things that make us happy, things that we appreciate, things that make us feel good, like careers, jobs, families, Family. people, mm. friends, social lives, voluntary work, what you do is you reduce it down and push it away. So by the following Thursday, I was I was very ill. So she said to me, you have to do two things. You have to register with a local GP because I was still registered with a previous GP. And she said, and you have to contact the crisis response team at the local trust. And then you have to give, send me evidence by email that you've done both of those things. So I did that and I contacted the crisis response response team and what's been I think pivotal to the care that I've received is where I live in Hackney is covered by East London Foundation Trust Mm -hmm. and you know how the Care Quality Commission works around the country and they assess each trust so ELFT is one of only two trusts in the country that is seen as outstanding two trusts in Um, terms of mental health in terms of mental health yeah so uh, for mental health across the country there's east london foundation trust and then there's one in the northeast i think it's like tynesk and weirs or something like that but only two trusts in the whole of the country so that like let's imagine that if that was primary schools or secondary schools you'd have what like 10 schools 15 schools seen as outstanding there'd be an absolute national uproar exactly and what happened is from the very first contact with that trust Mm. and all the way through right up to now the care really has been outstanding so I've worked in lots of different trusts I've worked in the independent sector and I've worked with some fantastic people but what has been amazing about this trust is the consistently compassionate care Mm -hmm. and that makes a real difference when you're depressed when you're low and vulnerable having staff and people who are kind and caring and considerate and give you time makes all the difference so I was assessed by the crisis team on the Friday and they said you know we'd like you to come into hospital and I said no 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 I'm a director I'm fine I'm going back to work on Monday you know I'll get through this I've got some antidepressants a bit like a cold or something yeah 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 and I just thought I just thought no I can keep going I can keep going you know stiff up a lip and you know I've got my suit of armor on so that weekend I couldn't leave the house it was terrible all I had to eat all weekend was crisps and chocolate that was all I had in my cupboard I had I couldn't have tea nothing and I was crying and crying and crying but Monday morning got up put my suit on literally put my suit on and my suit of armor and I went to work so we had our executive team meeting on a Monday morning as we normally do and I was fine in the meeting functioning completely normally my PA was looking after me and we worked really closely together and later on she was just like I just can't believe you you were even ill and then at lunchtime that day I had to take quite a long drive probably about an hour in the car and I remember walking towards my car and just thinking I can't do this 
I just thought I'm broken inside and it was the first time in my life that I actually realized I felt like I was on a precipice looking into this vortex and I thought if I get into that car and start driving I'm not responsible for my actions I'm too ill so I phoned the crisis response team and they said come into hospital we'll, we'll sort you out to bed and you know bring an overnight bag and I was like wow this, this is, is this is happening you know and I I really had tried everything because I know quite a lot ever so much about mental health I tried CBT cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. I tried relaxation I'd taken the medication I was doing everything I could but still I, I could sense inside me I literally felt like a fractured you know like on the matrix or something like that when the people kind of dissolve and one mm. poke and everything just falls apart I, I felt that fragile so we'll, we'll move on to the care you got and what it was like being yeah. in a hospital yeah. as a patient as yeah. opposed to a professional at yeah. the moment but and essentially and I think this is something you hear a lot from people who suffer from depression is that there were two versions of you out there so there was you yeah. going to work and often I I, mean, I hear people say I can't believe you'd ever have these thoughts. You know, you look so bubbly, you yeah. look so cool, you kind of totally got it. And I think that's a really important lesson for us to learn because we never know what's going on Absolutely. behind the suit, no. behind the makeup, exactly. behind the facade. Yeah, and that, I mean, um, I saw a picture of um, Robin Williams who committed suicide. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's got a beautiful smile and he's so funny. Mm. And, the, and the, the thing written next to it was you never know what is going on mm. behind the smile. So... Like I said, I was in everybody else's eyes. I was fully functioning and I was working as a director and I was getting on with the project that I was delivering and that was fine. But inside, I knew that I was broken. And you needed to be fixed. And, and I had, yeah. And it was the first time that I felt so high risk and so, I, I felt like I was on a precipice and about to fall. So you went into hospital. I went into hospital that day and I, you know, the staff, because the staff. They were very, very professional. Because they knew I was the director of nursing, they were all a little bit kind of initially a little bit on edge around me. They were like, oh, gosh. You is know, she going to mark us? Yeah, yeah. Is she like an <laughs> undercover cop or what's going on? Is this all a trick? Yeah. But they, they could see very, very quickly how, how ill I was. Mm. And what happened after going into hospital for the first couple of days? What did it talk to me? Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I would like to know what it is like to be hospitalised okay. for a depression, you know, do you get given pills? You know, we've seen the kind of movie versions yeah. of it where everyone has to go to the well, little, of the cookies you know, yeah, yeah, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> is it like that? Are there people shrieking or is it just, you know, because I think it's really important to take away that stigma because yeah. it's quite a frightening idea to be hospitalised for yeah. depression. I think people will go, oh my God, I know. And they think, yeah. I can just carry on. And actually it's, it's probably, it's an incredibly brave and important and brilliant thing for you to have done mm. and to accept it. I always think we need to treat, when we feel we're mentally ill, treat ourselves the way we would if we were physically ill, which is look after ourselves, yeah. get treatment. Yeah. But so tell us a bit about okay. what it was like. So just to put it into context, if you think of a, a triangle, like a pyramid mm -hmm. shape with the small bit on top, the bottom is everybody who's in the community with mental health problems mm -hmm. and they've just got mild anxiety or, you know, quite low level depression and they're treated by their GP. And then you have like the middle band, which is people who've acknowledged they've got mental health problems and they're having treatment through the mental health services. Mm -hmm. They're seeing a psychologist or they've got a community psychiatric nurse, they're on medication or whatever. And then as you go up the triangle people start using more specialist services like specialist eating disorder services or specialist community addiction services or something then right at the top of the triangle which is right that's where the hospital admissions are because these are the people who are the highest risk 
I was at a very serious risk of taking my own life. Mm-hmm. If that risk hadn't been there for the suicidal thoughts, I could have been treated in the community. Mm-hmm. But because I knew that my risk was so high and the doctors could see my risk was so high, that was why you I was admitted. You didn't feel safe. Didn't feel safe. Yeah. So someone listening to this right now who perhaps yeah. thinks they're suffering from depression and doesn't know what to do, how do you know when to go to that top point is if you don't feel safe go now to your doctor and tell them those words I do not feel safe I do not feel safe so in the NHS and again this is unfortunately where the NHS is a postcode lottery different Mm -hmm. trusts have different services so East London Foundation Trust as an outstanding trust there's four ways I can access emergency care the first is they have a crisis cafe in Mm -hmm. Hackney which is fantastic I've used it quite a few times now and it's open in the evenings and at weekends and if you feel that you are feeling sad or low or desperate or having thoughts of self-harm or having anxiety you can just turn up at the crisis cafe it's a drop-in you have a cup of tea with the staff who are absolutely wonderful and it's run between East London Foundation Trust and the charity Mind so that's fantastic and there are many of those around the country but so many people just don't Don't know know they're there so that's the first the second is a 24-hour crisis line and again nearly every single trust will have a 24-hour crisis line so you can phone that number there are lots of other non NHS services like the Samaritans and Mind and other charities who do that as well but this is an NHS 24-hour emergency crisis line so you can access that and we can put that number on the website yes yeah absolutely and then there's the every trust will have something called either a crisis team or a crisis resolution and home treatment team or a crisis response team and they're a team of qualified clinical staff who can come out and see you at home and the fourth is called A&E Liaison. So when you become really unwell, you can just turn up at any A&E in the country and there will be a psychiatrist who can come and see you at A&E. So those four crisis services are available in Hackney and nearly all of those four are available around the country but people just don't know about them and even the conversations with the ladies I was living with on the ward they had no idea about the crisis cafe which is just 10 steps outside the hospital really? grounds. Yeah. So what were the people like? Um, okay. So what, did you yeah. make friends? Yeah. What, what were they in for? Was, so without, obviously I can't, I'm sure no, you can't I won't break any confidentiality <laughs> at all, don't worry, I won't give names and addresses or anything. So when I was first admitted, I was extremely depressed. So I actually became worse over the first three weeks that I was in. And that's mm. quite common because I let my guard down. So for the first three weeks, I became almost monosyllabic, which meant I could hardly speak. I couldn't walk properly. I'd be kind of very disorientated. I wasn't eating properly. So it had a physical... It had a physical... What depression does is it affects the frontal lobe of your brain. Mm -hmm. And the frontal lobe does things like functioning, memory, recall, speech, and things like that. So when you have a really severe episode of depression, it has a physical impact on you. And one of the things I was saying this... when I was lecturing about this recently, you also forget and don't care about your personal hygiene. Really? Yeah. So a lot of people who've got long-term mental health conditions have really bad teeth. Right. And I've known that for years because I've worked in mental health and I've seen people who've had long-term mental health problems and their teeth are half missing or they're black or whatever. For the first two weeks, I didn't brush my teeth. It's not that I thought I'm not going to brush my teeth. It didn't even occur to you. It didn't even occur to me. And several times over the first two weeks, I would wear the same clothes during the day 
and at night and at day and at night and I wasn't showering and the nurses didn't know it wasn't like they were ignoring me I'd have these clothes on during the day and then I'd go to bed and they wouldn't come in and strip back the covers and say have you got your pajamas on I was just so ill I was not eating I was just kind of in my bedroom crying and then I'd get into bed and sleep and then I'd get out I could hardly speak so for the first three weeks I didn't really go out onto the ward I didn't mix with the patients I was in a bedroom on my own sharing a bathroom and toilet with everybody else but I didn't spend any time with the other ladies at what point did you move from spending all your time in your bedroom to to kind of to going out into the lounge so I know the the process of depression really well so I think that one of my real saving graces is I know my personality and our personalities they're made by the time we are three years old and they are set by the time we are five so it's very difficult to change a personality from somebody so I know that my personality is neither depressed nor anxious so I was 100% sure that I would get over the depression and I am now and I remain 100% sure that I will get over the anxiety that I have at the moment Mm And that was the glimmer of hope that I had. So although I felt absolutely terrible, I knew in my head this would go. So, so many people who don't have that clinical experience Mm. and knowledge like I do, that's why people are at such high risk of suicide because they just think the rest of my life I'm going to be this sad and you can't see into the future. So so say again, let's imagine someone's listening to this right now in the grips of depression and they don't the way it works it will it, it will, will definitely get better. get better depression is a clinical illness so if you have a chest infection and you take antibiotics the chest infection will go if you have a clinical depression and you have the treatment for clinical depression the clinical depression will go right and you will get straight back to how you were before okay. and i have worked with i mean it probably is thousands of patients over the years who i've seen get better yeah. and i've seen people with terrible depression get better but sadly and it is a terrible, terrible thing. I've also worked with people who have killed themselves. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with families of people who've killed themselves. And that's what the NHS services are there for. The crisis services are there to offer the support to people. But the interesting thing is, for me, I knew all that. I knew those crisis services were there. And still, I you know, carried on thinking I'd be okay at home. Mm-hmm. But when I came into hospital, like I said, I, I continued to get worse. And the, the self-harm thoughts were terrible but what happens then is when you start coming out of the depression because I again I knew the antidepressants were starting to work once you come out of the depression that's when your risk escalates because when you're so depressed and you're unable to do anything and you can't like I say you can't wash you can't dress you're not interested in brushing your teeth you know you just have got no energy to do anything once you start getting better and you start getting your energy back that is when you become a really high risk of actually taking your own life Mm. because you start thinking oh I could do this or I could get that or I could bring this and do that so I can very very clearly remember that day it was a Saturday and I can remember thinking going from thinking about suicide to thinking I'm actually going to kill myself and I know how I'm going to do it and one of the and I was really really crying and I was because I was really scared and frightened because part of me also didn't want to kill myself Mm -hmm. and one of the really lovely nurses came into my room to do the checks because they check um, all the patients all the time and she saw I was crying and she said you know do you want to talk about something is there something you need to talk about and I just started crying she said look I'm just going to go and finish the the round and then I'll come back so she went around and checked all the other patients and came back and just was so kind and compassionate and she sat there and she talked to me and I said 
I've changed. My risk has changed. Because I was doing like my own clinical risk yeah, assessment. Yeah. I said, I'm actively suicidal. I've gone from being depressed and suicidal to being actively suicidal. So you told her you were actively suicidal. So yeah. then what happens? What so, kicks in? What provisions yeah. are made? So I was an informal patient. So mm-hmm. I wasn't detained under the Mental Health Act. So the observation was increased on me. And the nurses would come and speak to me. I mean, regularly during the day, but at least twice a day, they'd come and spend quality time with me. They were checking on me all the time and they were supporting me and talking to me. They were asking me and having open conversations about risk. It's not something that you can hide away. So again, I know the phase of the illness and the suicidal thoughts. What actually stopped it is I had a very frank conversation with one of the junior doctors because I was so worried and they tweaked my medication. They put me on an antipsychotic medication, which kind of within three days switched off some of the black thoughts Mm -hmm. that I was having. And that made a really massive impact on me because once I'd stopped thinking about death and self-harm, I then just had to tackle the depression. Yeah. So So what's coming to me here is that the importance of vocalising what's in your head because otherwise you you will not get better. No, no, no. And when I, you know, very, very sadly, as the director of nursing and as a senior nurse, you have to do the investigations and read the root cause analysis of all the suicides or any suicides that happen Mm. within your trust so I get to hear and with the gift of hindsight you can say oh if this had happened there might have been a different Mm -hmm. outcome or if that had happened or if the person had spoken to their mother or if their wife had not gone out shopping or whatever it is you can always look back and say if something different had happened that person might not have taken their own life that day so after those three weeks I then had three horrible weeks so have you heard of the word anhedonia no. So have you heard of the word hedonism? Yes. Okay. Obviously. So, and, <laughs> so anhedonia is the opposite of oh, hedonism. Oh, right. Oh, that sounds very oh, dull, doesn't oh, it's, it? Oh, it's terrible. So I'm a really cheerful person and I love life and I really have a lot of fun and I'm a very hedonist. social. I'm a complete hedonist. <laughs> so I had three weeks of torture, which is where I had anhedonia. So I took no pleasure from anything I didn't even take pleasure from chocolate. What? It was that bad. You know, no pleasure from my my friends or family visiting, the television. Everything was boring. And this is one of the terrible things of depression. So Mm. people who have longer lasting depression and have anhedonia, life is miserable. Mm. There's nothing is going to cheer you up. And you just, I was kind of grotty and grumpy and... You know, just it was just horrible. But again, I know the cycle, so I knew that that was going to go. And just going back to what you were asking about the other ladies on the ward and what mm. it's like living on the ward, it was sort of after that period, the anxiety then began to kick in, but I'd spend more time on the ward. So just to kind of give you an overview of the ward, there's, um, it was a single-sex ward, which mm. I'm really glad about. So I shared my living accommodation with 19 other ladies. There was 20 ladies. There'd be four or five nurses on duty during the day. And because we cover the borough of Hackney, Mm. it's a very diverse inpatient population. In London, yeah. So this was really interesting. Having worked in the NHS for 30 years, I've got friends from all over the world and I've done a lot of voluntary and charity work in Africa. So I was living with uh, this range of really interesting people on the ward. So there was black British, there was black African, there was uh, Muslim ladies, Mm -hmm. there was a few Eastern European ladies who couldn't, uh, and a couple of those couldn't speak any English. And we had 
had um, at one time we had three or four Orthodox Jewish ladies in the ward at the same time as well. So there was no racial tension on the ward. Well, also, at I mean, all. that shows you it literally happens to everyone. Everyone. <laughs> I tell you, it was yeah. really interesting because, you know, we'd all sit together, we'd all be mm. in distress together. And you were um, all bonded and by. And we all bonded, yeah. yeah. So it didn't matter, you know, the, the ladies with the hijabs or the Orthodox Jewish ladies who were wearing the traditional clothes, you know, I'd make them a cup of tea. If they mm. saw me crying, they'd give me a hug. Depression so doesn't discriminate. Not at all, not at all. And on the ward, there's also a range of mental health problems. So there was quite a few ladies who had psychotic illnesses. Right. And psychosis is where you, maybe you hear things that other people can't hear mm-hmm. or you see things that other people can't see or you believe things that aren't necessarily happening. Yeah. So there were some very disturbed ladies on the ward as well. It would go in peaks and troughs, but I'm used to it because I've worked in mental health for 30 years. Occasionally, there'd be an admission. Some, a new lady would come in and there might be some aggression or there might be some shouting. There might be some drama on the ward for one or two or three days until she was given some treatment and the medication sorted and then they'd calm down. And again, I'd see ladies coming in extremely psychotic and very, very ill. And four, five, six days later, I'd be standing in the queue next to them talking about what we were going to have for lunch. Wow. So it's really, I mean, what I think I think that what that shows is that it is, that they are illnesses like any other and yeah. you can get better of from course. them with treatment. Absolutely, yeah. So how long were you in hospitals? You were there for Christmas, weren't you? Yeah, I was there for Christmas. I had a Christmas Christmas dinner in hospital. And is it, would you, would you recommend the food? <laughs> so I had roast the food outstanding it or was, just the care? <laughs> the food was lovely, um, but there was an alternative for Christmas dinner and it was chicken tikka masala. So I had a roast turkey dinner with a bit of chicken tikka masala. That sounds lush. <laughs> I mean, Highly ob- recommended. Obviously, we don't want to make light of yeah. it, but you know. So the nurses who worked throughout the Christmas period were fantastic. One of the lovely nurses, who's an absolute stunner, who who works nights quite regularly, she came in every single night with a different Christmas outfit on. Yeah. On Christmas Day, all the staff wore Christmas jumpers, um, and you could participate as much or as little as you wanted in those sort of things. There was about, I think, seven empty beds over the Christmas period, which is quite common for mental health to, for people to want to be at home with their families over Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, Why did you choose? You just knew you had to be. I was too unwell to go home over Christmas, but mm-hmm. I came on, I went out on overnight leave on about the 27th of December and then was sort of in and out of hospital for the next couple of weeks until I was discharged on the 13th of January. So can I ask about your friends and yeah. family and how they supported you and what was it like coming out? I, mean, I think your mother came to visit you, didn't she? She yeah. made like six hour round trips. That's right. So when you're very, very depressed, you, you don't want to communicate. You don't want to talk with people. But I told my mother and two of my sisters and I told my three best friends. And other than that, nobody else knew that I was in hospital for about the first month. So my family would come and see me and I'm normally, as I said in the article on LinkedIn, you know, I'm a competent professional proud articulate you know pretty bright person and I've never you are really bright and can I just say because this is a podcast so you can't actually see but you've got amazing wonderful earrings on I love them bright blue <laughs> lovely eyeshadow and you've got a massive wonderful smile and beautiful eyes and you're really bright and sparkly thank you thank so, you it's really nice to hear and to talk the, so the LinkedIn article that you wrote yeah. which we will put the link on the website as well that went viral so to yeah. speak yeah it? so so, so just going back to what so what happened is my family who were used to seeing me be ve- being very competent very on top of things and very very cheerful all the time they would come and see me and I would be lying down crying I'd be on the so I can just remember lying there on this red sofa crying and crying and crying and my sisters and my mum they said initially they just didn't know what to say to me they Mm. had no idea 
And then I started talking about harming myself and my family were absolutely devastated about that because I've never talked about it before. They'd never considered it. And if you look at it from the family's point of view and having worked with bereaved families, to lose a member of your family is terrible. To lose a member of your family through suicide is just on another level. Because you feel sort of responsible. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what would you say, what advice would you give to family members who are listening to this now and they have not the foggiest idea how to help their ill relatives? So it's communication. Mm-hmm. It's talking about it. So I've learned quite a few different things from my time, definitely. I've learned a huge amount on, from my time. But one of the things is having open conversations conversations so a lot of people don't like to talk about mental health because of the stigma around it Mm -hmm. so if you if you see your friend or family member is low or sad or isolating themselves or keeps cancelling on nights out pop around there go Mm -hmm. around there with a cup of tea take them out for dinner telephone them send them messages show them you love them them. you just need to really reach out because when you're depressed you think nobody cares you Mm. think nobody wants them And, and in fact it's very common to think I personally didn't feel this, but I I know a lot of people have said the world will be a better place if I'm not in it. So for the family members and carers and friends, just to sort of say, how are you feeling today? And, you know, my best friend, every single day I was in hospital, every single day she phoned me and I never once picked up the phone but she still phoned me every single day and I can remember lying in my bed crying and I'd be looking at my iPhone and her face would come up on my iPhone (laughs) and I'd see her number ringing and I'd be crying looking at the phone and not answering it but it meant something it really meant a huge amount to me because I know she cared and then she'd send me a text saying come on answer the phone I want to chat or she'd send me stupid selfies of herself at work and all this Mm. sort of stuff if you're looking after somebody or somebody you know has got depression just keep going keep offering them support and be consistent tell them you love them and be there for them that's really important so you were discharged on the 13th of january yeah so how many weeks in total did you do did i do my time your time sorry it makes you sound like you're in prison how many did you do on the ward so i was in hospital altogether for 12 weeks okay um but for the last two weeks i was spending some time at home okay so what happened with the the anxiety is very strongly linked to depression and as I'm not a normally a depressed person, I am very, very laid back and mm. I don't get anxious about anything at all. So the anxiety when that started was a terrible, terrible shock to me. So that was and that was while you were still in hospital. Yes, it was what it was towards the end. So as the depression was lifting. So the way I would the analogy I would use in physical health is that I'd fractured my right hip and I was having physio and I was learning how to walk again and then I twisted my left ankle. Right. That the anxiety ripped the rug out. From under my feet. Such a, I mean, I don't want to swear, but it really is. Mental illness is a real beep, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> It, it sometimes yeah. it just keeps on giving and yeah. you're like just give me a break Honestly, here I, the, the main thing about anxiety is the physiological feelings so the adrenaline reaction and the yeah. panic attacks and stuff so I've never experienced them before but I can remember on my very very first trip home on my own so the week before a nurse had gone with me and we spent one hour at my house and I was a bit anxious about it but okay But I got into the taxi this day and I done a safety plan for the ward and the staff were fine and I was in a really good mood. And I got into the taxi and we got about a quarter of the way home. Mm. And then 
I didn't know, but I had an adrenaline reaction. So adrenaline is released through your body, and that is a fight or flight. That's the caveman response. Mm. So it's like I've suddenly been attacked by a woolly mammoth, yeah. but I'm sat in a taxi in Hackney, <laughs> you know, in a traffic jam. And I get all these physical sensations. So my pupils dilate, my heart starts pumping. Yeah. All the blood diverts away from your vital organs to your muscles, so you're tense and ready to fight. You want to wet yourself because you need to lighten your body so you can run. And you get this thing called a sense of impending doom. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard about this so many times, and Mm. I've talked about it. I've never experienced it. I thought, honestly thought the taxi driver was driving us into a tsunami or to a volcano. I was so frightened. Mm. And I was saying, Mandy, you know this is fight or flight. You know this is adrenaline. But I wanted to grab the taxi driver by the shoulders and shake him and say, take me back, take me back, because I thought something awful was going to happen. It was absolutely out of this world it was Mm. I couldn't believe it and that was a pure panic attack and that was the first one I'd had and some people live with these daily weekly monthly Mm -hmm. for long periods of time so I've had to very very quickly put into practice all the things that I've taught other people over the years so what are the things because I you know I have someone very close to me who has terrible panic attacks yeah. and it's always quite kind of how do I deal with them yeah. how do you know you can't yeah. you say to someone it's okay you've yeah. had this before this is gonna go okay but then they are sort of obviously because they think it's the sense of impending doom they think they're right. literally about to die so it's very very common when people have panic attacks to take themselves to A&E because they think they're having a heart attack yeah and I've heard this so many times over the years I thought my heart was going to jump out of my chest. I could hear it in my ears mm-hmm. and I could feel it when I put my hand there. I could feel mm-hmm. my heart pounding yeah. and I'm sat in a taxi. So if I didn't know that was an adrenaline response, I would be going to A&E and saying I'm having a heart attack. It is difficult to know. Yeah. But if it, I suppose if it feels like a panic attack, it probably is a panic attack. Yeah. But it's only once you get to know the symptoms because mm. a lot of people present with no knowledge or no history of mental illness. So you get a lot of people turning up to A&E and I've met many people over the course of my career who who have not acknowledged that they've got depression or anxiety and they keep presenting with physical problems. They keep going to the GP with physical problems and then eventually uh, an emotionally intelligent GP or a good GP will say have you thought that you might be depressed? How are you sleeping? And start linking these things together Mm. and then maybe start some counselling, some therapy, some antidepressants or something like that. Some people find, I think some people find that almost it's probably, it would be easier to have a physical illness. I know I've had health anxiety and I've gone to the doctor and I've, I've, you know, are you sure I'm not having a heart attack? Are you sure I don't have this, that terminal illness or that? And they say, no, I think this is your obsessive compulsive disorder coming back. (laughs) In a way, it it would be easier to have broken your leg or, you know, or to, and I don't, I say that with great respect to people that are physically ill. I think some people think that when they're told, no, you have a mental illness, they kind of are almost offended. Like, well, as if it's not real. But it is real. It's as real as any of the other illnesses. Absolutely. It's as tangible as a heart attack. It really is. Just going back to what you're saying about the things that really help you when you're having a panic attack. What happens is you have this adrenaline response. One of the things that happens is your eyes dilate, which means that they very become very light sensitive. So it's very common to have panic attacks in things like supermarkets and places where there's very, very bright light. Okay. The, the thing to do is to ground yourself. One of the most helpful things to do is something called square breathing. Okay. So you, you look at any square anywhere and then you go along the top and you breathe in and then you go along the side and hold then you go along the bottom and breathe out then you go back and you hold 
That's very good. So I'm doing a, this yeah, now, yeah, looking yeah, at a square. There's a, there's a square in every room. I think so everyone you, right now, yeah. look for a square and do your square breathing. <laughs> okay, so we breathe in, then we hold it, then we breathe out, then we hold it, then we breathe in. And you keep going round the square and you do that because also when you get anxious, your breathing goes off balance. So the carbon dioxide in your lungs is uh, altered with the oxygen. So you get very lightheaded and dizzy. Square breathing stops that. Mm -hmm. And it also gives you something to focus on. Square breathing is a really good one. Another thing that is a brilliant thing to do when you're having um, an anxiety response is looking at the fingers of your hand. You need to think of five things. So you, th you, you think for five things that you can see four things you can touch, three things that you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. And I did that in the taxi because I had a cost, cup of cost, cost of coffee with mm -hmm. me and I looked for five things I could see and I chose five interesting things, not just boring things like the taxi driver's bald head or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I said, right, I can see, you know, I tried to look for five positive things and then what could I touch? And I remember I had my Ugg boots on. So with my toes, I could feel the lovely furry bit inside. So I had four things I could touch, three things I could hear. And then obviously I could smell the coffee and I could smell the fuel and then I could taste the coffee so that's a grounding exercise yep. it's like a cbt exercise yes. so those are the sorts of things when you're when you're right in the middle of a panic attack is to take control here and now and use your mind mm -hmm. the strongest thing we have is our mind but there are lots of other things that we can do so again maybe we could put a couple of links with the podcast that would be great of how you can deal when you're actually having I an anxiety no, attack we will definitely do yeah. that okay so you've been out of hospital now for a, few, a couple of months yeah if I walk past you in the street, yeah. I would not know that you had been three months on a ward. And I think that's what's great about this, is that it proves that it can happen to literally anyone. Anybody, yeah. Do you think there was a reason for your depression? Or do you think it was, I have this thing, that there isn't always a reason for people becoming depressed. You have reactive depression, yeah. obviously, as we discussed yeah. earlier. Yeah. But sometimes it just hits us. Absolutely, yeah. And do you kind of think that was exactly what happened? So different... Depressive illnesses affect different people. So if you have a uh, a knee replacement, then the knee surgeon, if you open your knee, our knee, his knee, twenty knees, all the knees are going to look different. Yeah. Sorry, all the knees are going to look the same. But with depression, we've all got different histories behind us. So what might upset me may not upset you. What mm -hmm. upsets him might not upset her. What happens with quite a lot of depressive illnesses is they build up over a period of time mm -hmm. and then suddenly it's like um, water behind a dam and, it goes, and then suddenly <sighs> you get the straw that breaks the camel's back yep. anything can trigger that off it could be extra financial pressure it could be problems uh, in the home it could be a bereavement it could even be watching a television show it could be something, something quite yeah, small something quite small and that makes you think right that's absolutely it and then suddenly the floodgates open so what's happened since I've been out of hospital is, again, I think I'm quite blessed because I know community care really well. I have written myself a very, very robust recovery plan. Mm. We're not just physical beings. We're physical, psychological, spiritual, social, sexual, financial. We have all these different mm. needs. So a lot of people with mental health problems, if you take them out of their situation for three months and then you put them back into the same situation but with no support, then... They might have just got over that period of depression, but they're just going to get depressed again yeah. because the same things are there. Once you start taking the antidepressants, once the, anti once the depression starts lifting, you then need to then make some adjustments in your life. So one of the 
biggest things that have helped me, and I'm now completely evangelical about it, is mindfulness. Right. I've got friends who've been nagging me to do mindfulness for years and years, and I've been like, oh, yeah, 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 that sounds a bit like hippie-ish. That's yeah, not really yeah. my People kind of thing. People do tend to roll yeah. their eyes when you <laughs> yeah. mention mindfulness. Yeah. But it is brilliant. Oh, that's fantastic. I it started is. doing it on the ward, and it absolutely changed my It is my just outlook. putting yourself into the moment. You have to do it. Yeah, 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 you've just got to do it. So I started off doing like three minutes or five minutes or eight minutes or ten minutes, and because I'm not still not working at the moment, I'm doing at least an hour of mindfulness every day. Wow. And I do mindfulness every night when I go to sleep. You're a mindfulness master. Yeah, absolutely. I so what do you it. use? Kind of a headspace? I use, or? I use an app called Insight Timer, okay. which is fantastic. And there's basically three different types of mindfulness meditation that I use. The first is sort of a guide you know you go through your body and you tense up so you yep. screw up your eyes and you screw up your nose and you chomp your teeth and then you shrug your shoulders and then you tense your biceps there are lots of apps which we, again we will yeah. put on, the, on yep. the website so you go through that and it can take either 5, 10 or 30 minutes depending on which um, programme you choose and then at the end of it you've tensed and released every muscle in your body and you're lying there and you just can't move and you're relaxed and it's wonderful yeah. then there's a kind of relaxation um, meditation where you're focusing on breathing and you're focusing on calmness and you're you know you breathe in and you breathe in compassion and you breathe out and you breathe out tension and the third are things like guided fantasies and some of the things like mm, where you interesting <laughs> I might try those out um, I've got a very favorite one where you're up a mountain and you go into this special room and then there's things in the room that you can look at from your history and from your past and you can have conversations with people that you've been with in your past and stuff like that and again that's on the insight timer but that's one of my favorite so mm. mindfulness has made a really positive difference to my mental health to my relaxation and mindfulness for self-compassion has really helped me be being kind, kind to, myself. to yourself is yes. really important isn't yeah. it because life's too short yeah. so although I'm a nurse and I work in mental health services I'm my recovery plan is not focused around the medical model of course I'm doing some things with the medical model to help myself but what I'm doing is I'm doing yoga aqua aerobics I'm doing an evening class on mindfulness for self-compassion with the mental health charity Mind, mm -hmm. which is amazing. You can just go to their websites and see where the local ones are to you. I'm making sure that I've increased my social contact. I'm trying hard to sort my uh, healthy eating out. That's a little bit of a struggle at the moment. <laughs> so I'm doing all these kind of things to help myself, and I'm talking a lot more to friends and family. But I'm also taking my medication, seeing the psychiatrist, and having therapy. But I'm not putting those first they are things that are helping me but it's the whole recovery plan that is most important and I also know if I do get really upset again because I live in Hackney and I have access to these amazing crisis services that if I'm having a particularly bad day I can go to the crisis cafe I can just turn up and I can speak to a psychotherapist or an occupational therapist or whoever's on duty that day so there's a whole range of different things available to me as I continue through my recovery to help me get well the psychotherapy that I'm having, I've got about another three or four weeks of quite tricky mm -hmm. stuff. And then after that, I'm going to go back to work. Mm -hmm. So I'll have given myself three months off, off work to be in hospital and then a further three months off work for my recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and I tweet a lot about my recovery and about my uh, No my Twitter is, what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at Mandy Stevens 22 
Okay. So I'm now linked in with loads and loads of different people. And I'm really, really impressed. I, I did a panel discussion recently with somebody who runs mental health first aid. So you know when you have your first aid training at work yeah, yeah, where yeah. you're jumping around on Resussy Annie and learning how to sort of slap people on the back if they're choking yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a company called Mental Health First Aid and they offer training to workplaces for firstly looking after your own mental health and secondly spotting and encouraging and supporting other people who have mental health problems so MHFA absolutely fantastic resource and again I think you know the link to that is great because it's encouraging people to talk about it to acknowledge it and to reduce the stigma and I think they said they've trained two million people now in mental health first aid so it's absolutely fantastic. So drawing to a close this has been incredibly interesting for me on a practical level the things I have learned you know things I just didn't know and I feel that I'm pretty well educated on (laughs) mental health services you know having been in them since I was sort of 12 what would your biggest piece of advice to someone listening right now who feels unwell or suspects someone near close to them is unwell what would your biggest piece of advice be to them in terms of getting help and also a lot of people struggle and they they perhaps can't access the NHS services and they get given the antidepressants and then told to go they're on a waiting list for therapy yeah what can you do right now to help yourself okay so I'll do two things the first is about what you can do to somebody who you care for or love or know who's got mental health problems and the second is about what you can do for yourself Mm -hmm. the first is if you are concerned about somebody have an honest conversation don't just walk past them don't just ignore them or don't just say you know do you want a cup of tea just say I notice you've been looking a bit down recently would you like to have a chat about it or you know you've been looking really sad this week can I take you out for dinner on Tuesday Mm -hmm. and and reach out to them and if it's a family member or somebody who you're much closer to then going around and speaking to them and encouraging them to have open conversations is one of the most important things because it's really difficult and really embarrassing to admit that you've got a mental health problem if you are perceived or seen to be really strong so reach out to that person talk to them and make the conversations very easy to have you can then if you just sort of search online for local mental health services so I can't advocate enough for things like Mind Charity the Samaritans Sane Charity together there's so many different mental health charities that are fantastic that offer art classes art therapy evening courses helplines cafes all these amazing resources are out there outside of the NHS I'm also going to plug my own Outside. thing, Mental okay. Health Mates. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. So that's the, we have yeah. walks around the country. Yes. We've got a website, mentalhealthmates.co.uk. Yes. So there's lots out yes, there. Yes, yeah. And this is without going anywhere near the NHS. And then the third thing for a carer is to search online and have a look and see what type of services are available locally. For self-care for people themselves, the first thing I would say is to reach out to people because once you start talking about it, people will care. People will want to help you. Your friends and family aren't going to go, oh, I'm really sorry to hear you're depressed, but I don't want to talk about it. I'm really busy. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's your turn to go and pick the kids up from school sort of thing. (laughs) You know, that they will want to help you. As a 
an overproud person that I was, I'm, I'm not now, I wouldn't have reached out and asked for help before, but now I would, absolutely, definitely. So I, I spoke to my sister, one of my sisters lives in Leicester on Friday, and I sent her a message saying, uh, you know, I'm having a bit of a bad day, are you free for chat? And then I cried at her on FaceTime for 90 minutes. That's what she, FaceTime was made oh, for. She was feeding the baby and letting the dogs out and doing all this sort of stuff, and I'm going, And this is the key thing, isn't it? You still probably still have still bad, bad days. days. Yeah, but that yeah. doesn't mean every day is going to be not bad. Not at all. Not at all. It's not a smooth upward journey. So the first thing for yourself is to reach out and ask for help. The second thing is please be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Be self-compassionate. And the best thing I heard on a mindfulness podcast about this was think about somebody that you really love and care about and how you would talk to them when they are ill. So think about the language that you would use and think about the tone of voice that you'd use. You'd say things like, it's okay, don't worry, you've tried, you've tried your best today, tomorrow is another day, and you'd you'd hug them. But to yourself, you silly this, that and the other, (laughs) you're an idiot, you know, you're a fool, you're rubbish, you're terrible, you've let everyone down again. I would shout at myself, I would say terrible things to myself. So self-compassion is really important. And thirdly is mindfulness. I just have to plug mindfulness again. Mindfulness is, is about keeping yourself well, it's about grounding yourself and just keeping that kind of time just to be on your own and to focus on the here and now. Mandy, you're absolutely awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming in. It's been my pleasure. And I just want to say that I think it's so great that you've taken this incredible negative in your life and turned it into something profoundly positive. And Mm. what you've just told us is just going to help so many people. I think you should write a book. (laughs) Mandy's top tips for dealing with depression and anxiety. Well, I've always been a really strong advocate for mental health and I've stood up and spoken at national and international conferences about it. So how could I keep my own mental illness as a dirty little secret Mm. and not talk about it? And that's why I took that terrible selfie when I was in hospital because I kind of, even though I was so ill and in such a terrible state, I can remember thinking... There's an important story in here somewhere. So Mandy took a picture of herself. So on the blog that she wrote, at the top of it is a picture of her in hospital looking somewhat teary, but we've all been there. Yeah. You want to say thank you to someone or a group of people. (laughs) So I've got a very, very big thank you to say to East London Foundation Trust. The staff on the ward were so kind and compassionate and made such a difference to me personally and to everybody else. But also the whole multidisciplinary team, the approach to care and the fact that you could just see that everybody really cared. All the staff were just amazing. So big thank you to everyone on Garden Award and a big thank you to the board at East London Foundation Trust. Can I ask you something? Can you choose to have care anywhere you want in the country? So could someone listening to this who's coming up against brick walls in, say, Manchester, jump on a train and go down to Hackney? Unfortunately not, no. This is it, you see, it's a GP, it's a a postcode Postcode lottery. lottery. It's where your GP is registered and the GP, your GP surgery will buy mental health services from a local mental health trust thank you so much mandy you're absolutely awesome thank you (laughs) thank you if you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today a comprehensive list of mental health services is available on our website which is www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash mad world if you want help right now the following organizations offer free and confidential support over the phone Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116-123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. 
Their phone number is 0300-123-3393. That's 0300-123-3393. And they're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Finally, there's Young Minds, who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. And remember this, you are not alone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.